This is the Seedfield Podcast, the show where Antiochians share their knowledge, tell their stories, and come together to win victories for humanity. Today, we're joined by the leadership and ethics scholar Donna Ladkin for a conversation about the expectations that we place on leaders, the way that theorists have tried to make theories to explain how to be a good leader, and the problems that Donna is helping address in this field of leadership studies, which has historically been often quite white and quite male. Donna has been a highly productive scholar over the last three decades, from writing books to publishing many articles. And we're so lucky to welcome you to the Seedfield podcast, Donna. Thanks, Jasper. It's, it's, it was a wonderful invitation to be invited to come talk with you. So thank you. Well, we're super happy to have you here. And I have enjoyed reading some of your scholarship over the last week. And one of the things that I, th- I found really engaging in how you presented some of these questions about the ways that racialized people can be left out of the scholarship literature is by disclosing your and your co-authors' positionality, like what you're bringing to this conversation. So I was hoping we could start by following that lead and disclosing to our listeners what backgrounds we are coming from. So for my part, I'm a white cisgendered man. I'm 30 years old. I was born and have lived almost my whole life here in the U.S. Donna, can I ask you what position you're coming from as we embark on this conversation? Sure, Jasper. Uh, So I'm actually a biracial cisgender woman. My dad is African-American and my mom is European, Northern European, French and German. Uh, So I was born in 1959, which makes me 62. Uh, But also it's very interesting time from a sort of perspective from the racial conversation in that when I was born, my parents married in 1958 and many states in the United States had just uh, legalized interracial marriage when when they were married. I grew up in Washington, D.C., where I went to segregated schools until I was 10 and then moved to, to Maine, the family moved to Maine. So it's been interesting for me because I'm, I'm very pale skinned. I'm very light skinned as a biracial woman, and people often assume that I'm actually either white or Italian, or they don't often recognize my biracial roots. Um, So that's been interesting coming back to the United States and facing that. I I lived for 35 years in the UK, where there is, of course, a racial conversation there, but it's it's quite different. I find that quite a different kind of conversation going on there. So that's a little bit about my background. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit, but I, I like that you go into a little bit more detail of not just the boxes you might check on a census form, but also mm-hmm. more of the details of where you're coming from. And mm-hmm. I would love to get into that a little bit more to know more of your actual story and not just these positional details. So you are a scholar of leadership. And I'm very curious how you how you came to make this your life's work. How did you come to study leadership as a topic? That's a great question. I so just to say, I'm a very reluctant leadership scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I rather fell into the field. Um, my my own PhD is in the area of organizational psychology, and I studied learning and how people learn in organizations. 
But my, my first degree, my first love is really in philosophy. And after teaching in a business school for a number of years and doing more kind of straightforward organizational behavior kind of teaching, I decided I wanted to go back into philosophy. So I went and got a further master's degree in, in fact, environmental philosophy. And there really rekindled my love for philosophy as a discipline and as a way of thinking and approaching the world. When I finished that degree, I was contacted by a man in the south of England who was trying to put together a small unit of people who were looking at leadership from a philosophical perspective. And he'd actually gathered together a very interesting group of scholars looking at leadership from a philosophical perspective and really invited me to be to come and join that group. He'd heard about some of my work and it just seemed like a good fit because it kind of married my background in philosophy with my organizational sort of professional areas of study. And that's really when I when I became a leadership scholar. And to be honest with you, my first forays in the leadership literature left me rather quite unhappy really, because it just seemed that much of the leadership theorizing that I was reading was quite um, problematic in terms of, you know, it's there were a lot of people spouting ideas which were not necessarily empirically tested to the extent that they might have been. And then even when you looked at the empirical studies, a lot of them were based on certain assumptions that I found problematic. So I clearly situated myself at that point within the sort of field as a critical leadership studies person, looking at problematizing the way leadership has been theorized and trying to, I mean, for sure, it is a phenomena, you know, this phenomena of leadership you know, certainly we spend a lot of time talking about it and, and and it seems to carry a huge cachet in our society at the moment in particular. But I wanted to kind of understand more about why that was and also why the field has developed the way that it has and to kind of unpick some of the aspects of the field that I found more problematic. So my work over the last certainly 20 years has been looking at problematizing the field and trying to bring a different, more philosophically informed lens to exploring this phenomenon. That makes so much sense. And it seems like for a philosophically minded person, leadership studies would would offer kind of an, a, a venue for applied philosophy. Oh, yes. So I think some of our listeners may not have a deep background in what leadership studies even means. And I think a good place to start, again, taking this from one of your papers, is by talking about the ideas that we have about leadership that may be subconscious, the expectations that we place on our leaders and what leadership looks like. So can you describe for our listeners maybe some some of these leadership ideas that are given us to us by our society? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that they're not just given to us by our society, but they're given to us by our experiences. So you know, our experiences of how, as a child, we come into our family and how leadership is exercised in families. And then when we go to school and how we see teachers exercising leadership and and then, you know, going into our professional world. So I think, you know, leadership is a lived phenomenon for us, you know, from a very early age, you know, this idea that people are showing us direction and they're pe- you know, people are showing us how to get on in the world. And, you know, those ideas start to inform our kind of implicit ideas of what leading is about. And then when, if you look at 
the theoretical literature. I mean, in the United States, in the Western world, the canon, well, although we've got, you know, Greek philosophers who, who in fact, never use the word leader. I mean, Plato is known for his work on the, this notion of the philosopher king, and we, we take some of his ideas in terms of leadership studies, but he actually never used the word leader. The, leader, the word leader only came really into, well, certainly as a, as a discipline to look at, you know, really at the end of the 1800s. But, you know, the, the, the kind of contemporary understandings of leadership really are quite modern in their ideas. So this is kind of the separation you could see in like Confucius or Machiavelli. Yeah. Like these ideas of what it means to be like a feudal lord or or yes. a king or something. But this is exactly. leadership as a quality that like I could have helping out in my workshop or that I could exert over my congregation. Yes. Those early theorists, you know, they really are talking about the rulers of people, political leaders. Whereas since the 1980s in particular, we see this notion of, well, everybody can be a leader and, and, and also, you know, focusing very much on kind of traits that leaders have, like individuals who are leaders, you know, and on all the great man theories, and they were great man theories, um, we're looking at, you know, this, the constellation of traits which men needed to have in order to be leaders. So what, what are some of these traits that our society, if we, don't, if we don't unpack them, that we might just assume that a leader has? Well, it's really interesting. I was just reading one of my students' work today, and you know, she, she writes in a, this reflective essay that she's writing about herself as a leader, that she never imagined that she could be a leader because she wasn't necessarily flamboyant and charismatic. And, you know, that idea that, well, in order to be a leader, you have to be, you know, outspoken and, you know, be able to, you know, garner a lot of attention and that sort of thing. I think that's a, that's a kind of assumption that many people have about being a leader. And in the essay that she wrote, she, she wrote that actually she, as part of the program that she's on, has come to appreciate that that actually, you know, isn't necessarily what being a leader is about that actually there are other ways of, of leading. So I think, you know, we can limit ourselves by thinking that a leader has to look a certain way or act a certain way, when in fact we can still exercise influence and help groups of people find direction in quieter ways and ways that are more collective and less bringing of attention to oneself. That makes a lot of, a lot of sense. I think the idea of spending your time reading a book or taking courses or make creating scholarship around how to be an effective leader can sometimes get kind of a bad rap. Like you're just trying to get one up on other people or trying to accumulate power. And like I, I brought up Machiavelli earlier and like we have in the English language, this adjective Machiavellian, which really just means like a cunning and unprincipled politician. So why is it actually a good idea to study leadership and it not just a way to what make friends and influence people like to get to get one up on everybody else? I think that's really interesting. The notion of leadership is about getting up one up on everyone else. And I, I think, you know, the main reason why it's important to study leadership in a scholarly fashion is to expand one's view of a phenomenon. So, you know, we all have implicit ideas about what 
being a leader is. But I do think one of the things that can be helpful about studying leadership is that it can expand the concept for people. It can open up what's possible in terms of thinking about what leadership is. So, you know, to give you an example, I, I worked in the UK for quite a long time. I did a lot of work with military leaders in the UK. And we talked a lot about more distributed and collective forms of leadership. And one of the, the, the young military officers I was working with recounted a tale of his superior officer coming to watch a group of his cadets working with him. And the superior officer said, you know, what are you doing? I don't see any leadership here. And the officer had been on this program said, well, no, actually, there's a lot of leadership here. It's just, what are you paying attention to? Are you paying attention to the collective dynamics that are going on here? Whereas the superior officer was kind of ex expecting leadership to look at like, you know, one person sort of yelling at other people. So I think a reason to, to study leadership is to actually, because it can expand our view about what leadership can look like. And that actually to also understand that leadership I mean, it's a very contextually based phenomenon. So, you know, different you can do the same thing in different contexts. And in one context, be effective as a leader, and in another context, not be effective at all. So leadership is much more, I think when you start to look at the leadership literature a bit more, you start to see that leadership is a much bigger phenomenon than just leaders, that it actually involves um, contextual, historical, uh, societal elements as well. Yeah. Part of what I'm hearing from there is that by studying this, you're able to give names to different types of leadership. You start, you start yeah. to be able to see different possibilities forward. And maybe you give this cadet the ability to say, oh, well, you're looking for a sort of great man or charismatic leadership. And what we have is something that's more collaborative. Yes. Yeah. I think as well, it, you know, it's, it's not just about seeing what's out there, but it's seeing what is possible within oneself as well. So, for instance, you know, if you have in mind that the only way you can lead is from a position, you know, from, from being the leader, you know, then that really limits what we can do in social spaces. Whereas if we can say that actually leadership can happen in small interventions that Actually, I don't need to have positional power in order to perhaps make an intervention in a meeting that can be very helpful or to actually ask a colleague, you know, a question that can take what's going on into a different direction. And, you know, and that can be a leadership act and you don't have to have a position of the formal leader to be able to do that. Yeah. Now that we've established what leadership studies is to to some small degree and also how it can be useful. I want to talk also about some problems in leadership studies, which you've been publishing about quite a bit recently. And you have a forthcoming article that goes kind of deeply into the works of this prominent and influential leadership theorist, Bernard Bass. And he has this transformational leadership theory that you say is really an expression of or deeply enmeshed in whiteness, the scholarly idea of, of whiteness, which I am really excited to talk with you about. I don't think we've talked about whiteness enough on the seed field. But first, I think it would be great to start off by de defining this term whiteness. So what does whiteness, whiteness mean and why is it useful to be able to name it as such? 
Yeah, so before we even get into that, I'd just like to give credit to my co-author on that article, um, who's Dr. Cherie Bridges-Patrick, who worked with me on that. So I just want to make sure that she gets a plug in this as well. But to get to your question, what is whiteness? So the first and most important thing to say about whiteness is it's not about skin color. Whiteness is, if you will, a constellation of ideas and assumptions about how the world operates. And one of the things that seems to be at the heart of this orientation goes back to the Enlightenment, which is this idealization of rationality. So what we have in the Enlightenment is this, you know, privileging of the rational above all else, which is kind of encapsulated in the Cartesian view, I think, therefore I am. That's not actually what, what Descartes said, by the way. <laughs> he actually said, I know myself to be a thinking being, which is a little bit different from I think, therefore I am. Um, but anyway, the, the, the effect that this has had in terms of Western philosophy is a is a kind of privileging of the rational and the mind, as opposed to particularly in terms of the, bot, the, the body. And we see this orientation in whiteness, a kind of splitting of the mind from the body, and where we actually kind of discount the body. And this, is, this has profound implications. I mean, I think from an ethics perspective, there are people writing, Francesca Varela writes about the fact that in order to empathize with another human being, which is a kind of basis of ethical relations, one needs to be an embodied being, that our basis for empathy is actually somatic. Like, I know that I shouldn't slap you across the face because I know that when I'm slapped across the face, it hurts. And if, if I don't, if I'm not able to connect with that embodied way of being in the world, then my empathetic ability is greatly reduced. Yeah. And so when we think about that, and when if we think that whiteness is, you know, a foundational aspect of whiteness is this disembodiment and this privileging of rational, it, you know, it means that our very way of relating to one another is shortchanged if we don't have this embodied or if this embodied connection is not celebrated. And whiteness scholars develop this in terms of thinking about what where hierarchy fits within whiteness. So one of the things that they trace is this need for hierarchy and distance. So within a disembodied view of the world, the, the individual, because they're not connected in that embodied way, you know, has to kind of stand by him or herself and get separated out. And the other to whom we have to relate gets more and more distanced. And, and we see this in operation in structures like racism, where we take whole groups of people and discriminate them on the basis of their race. Well, you can, this can be traced back to this kind of need to separate and to create hierarchy, which is fundamental, white scholars are suggesting, to this whiteness orient this orientation around whiteness. Yeah, that is so interesting to trace it back to the field of Cartesian thought. 
and to see it almost as a as a direct outgrowth. And certainly the world of science has been I think we can just look, take a historical view and see that it's oh. over and over again from yes. measuring skulls to trying to to find a scientific basis yes. for race, which isn't even there. Yes, exactly. Uh, we find that over and over again. Yeah. The one of one of the points that I thought that you made that I, I want to draw out for our listeners is that uh, you brought up the idea of the other and that where whiteness really is operating, the people who are not seen as white are deserving of like you have to specially acknowledge them. So we might say like in in a in a very white space, you might be introduced as a black scholar of leadership where some a white man might just be introduced as a scholar of leadership. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What you're talking about there is um is a normalization process. So Levine, Levine Rassi talks about these habits of whiteness, and one of them is normalization, in which what's considered normal is white. So white is what's normal, and then anything else has to be marked as something else. And this is what, this is what we see a lot in leadership scholarship. So for instance, you know, Bernard Bass writes about transformational leadership, and he never writes about this is actually a theory about white people. <laughs> he never makes that explicit. No, he doesn't have to. And there's there's also, I mean, that same that same idea of normalization can be applied to straight people or yes. to uh, able bodied people. Yes, certainly for sure. All these different axes. Yeah. So I would love to to turn and talk about Bernard Bass, but. I, I also think it would be useful before we get into the problems of his theory to just quickly uh, run through this transformational leadership theory. What are what are the broad outlines of of this idea of how leadership works? Right. So I think what's really important is, and as for me as a scholar, what I'm always interested and what I'm always trying to get my students to do is, well, where did this come from, and what problem was it trying to solve? So I, that's where I always start with these things. Bass's theory of transformational leadership, which by the way, I just want to say, you know, is one of the most cited leadership theories in the canon of leadership studies. It is one of the most heavily researched theories. So it's, it's a theory which a lot of people turn to. Its roots are in actually James McGregor Burns' work. He wrote a book called Leadership. Burns' work, what he, what he wanted to Distinguished. He's a he's a military historian. Burns was by background, and what he was interested in was the different ways in which leaders engage people, and in particular, he talked about transactional leadership, which is you know where okay, I'm doing this for you, you do this for me, very transactional, and he but he noticed especially within military leadership. A kind of leading which seemed to be where pe where it wasn't just a transaction, but people, followers in particular, were doing things because they really believed in what the leader was talking about. And, and he actually called this transforming leadership. Bass then took this idea and developed it further. And it's really important to note, I mean, Burns is working from a military and a hist historical perspective. Bass is actually from looking at this, these ideas from a business perspective. Bass was a businessman, and he was, he was also trained in organizational psychology. And he 
he was quite interested in understanding, well, what are the factors that go into creating this kind of transformational leadership in which people are doing things in a way that actually meant that people were giving their more of their heart and soul to it. And he was interested in, in what that was, particularly within organizational domains, because he was interested in increasing productivity. If you look at Bass's books, they're all about how can we get people to exceed expectations? You know, so how can we get people to work in organizations and do more than what we're paying them for, really, which is the kind of underlying uh, kind of message. So at, it, at its root, there's a sort of a Fordist idea of like, how do oh, we yeah. how do we wring more productivity out of our exactly. out of our workers? Yeah. And it, it might not just be sitting there with a stopwatch and timing yeah. how long it takes to screw in a bolt. It might also be trying to have some charismatic person leading their unit yeah. who says, we're going to exceed these expectations. It gets people fired up. Yes. Exactly. That's exactly right. I, I would love to move along to when when you and your co-author, Sheree Bridges-Patrick, when you took this close look at it, how did you find whiteness at its roots? That's a quote, whiteness at its roots from your paper. So we we revisited Bass's work and Sheree is an expert in terms of critical discourse analysis, which is about, you know, looking at discourse, looking at language and, you know, rather than just reading things at the surface level, looking at what are the assumptions that underpin these assertions so that we take these things to be true. And that's a kind of critical discourse. Those, those questions that you're asking when you're using critical discourse analysis are about, well, what are the underlying assumptions that are underpinning this? Mm -hmm. And when we started to look at um, Bass's work, in particular, what you see is this exaltation of the power of the leader and the diminishment of the follower in particular. So the transformational leader is able to, first of all, know the direction that people should be going in. They're able to give meaning to followers. They're able to make followers feel more confident they're able to enrich followers' moral purpose. And when you start really like, okay, that in a way, that doesn't sound so bad on the part of the leader. But actually, when you start to dig a little bit more deeply about what's going on here, you see that the follower is really being characterized as a kind of a, a kind of less than human being, really. This is a person who doesn't have agency on their own part, a per, uh, an individual who, you know, lacks confidence, lacks a sense of direction. And it's really up to the leader to do these wonderful things for the follower. And it's, it's such a, in terms of power, it's so discrepant. And, and then when you start going back and looking at what whiteness scholars are seeing in terms of how whiteness operates, and you see the same thing, you see that real emphasis on hierarchy and power relations, which are, you know, so split. And it's kind of like seeing, oh my goodness, this is like, it's it's starting to mirror what we're seeing in whiteness studies and what we're seeing in this. Yeah. These unexamined power relationships where yeah. he's not explicitly saying like the followers are stupid and need, need the leader 
to be productive at all, but that's his subtext and sometimes almost rises to the level of text. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's scary. (laughs) And I was also, I mean, I think you effectively showed that there is the racial aspect to that as well, which is that he, in this like 1200 page book on like page 800 devotes 30 pages to leadership in in other cultures, which includes African-American leadership, but also in other nations. And and that makes it very clear that the norm yes. here is, is white. Yes, exactly. No, it was quite breathtaking, really. <laughs> yeah, for such a foundational text yeah, in your field exactly. to take a, another look at it here in 2021 and say, wow, this is not necessarily a good place for us to be starting from. Exactly. And so I, I want to ask like, a general question about your own experience as a teacher and scholar working in this field. You write that in this field, its theories are largely told from the perspective of straight white men. And as a black woman and someone applying critical race theory to these questions, have you found that the field is ready to hear this? And relatedly, are your students ready to hear this? Oh, Jasper, those are wonderful questions. Um <laughs> The editor of the journal Leadership, where this this article is going to be published, he did write to me and he said, um, you know, we'll probably get some kickback on this. <laughs> and I said, well, in the words of the, the, the late, great John Lewis, you know, hopefully we'll be making some good trouble, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Is the field ready? Probably not. But, but, you know, there are people like the editor of the journal Leadership, Dennis Turish, in the UK, who is very keen to have papers which address these issues published and brought into the mainstream. So, you know, I think the whole thing about being a scholar, you know, the whole thing about scholarship is about always being on the edge. You know, so it's actually not waiting until the field is ready. It's about pushing the field. That's how the field becomes ready, is by pushing the field in that direction. That's, I think, our work as scholars. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, are our students ready? To be honest with you, Jasper, I think our students are more than ready. You know, what I find is my students, our students at Antioch, they are pushing us in the classroom. They are pushing us now to, you know, it's not good enough now in the classroom just to be giving them readings written by straight white men. You know, they are they are saying this is not good enough. So I think our students you know what, our students are probably ready for it in ways that the academy isn't. And the structures that, you know, hold us all in place are not ready. But I think our students are. Yeah. Well, they're lucky to be to be studying with you, a scholar who is, <laughs> who is doing that good trouble to push the field forward. So we're coming to the end of our conversation, but we always like to close our show with some kind of advice or practice that our listeners can take into their into their days and lives be they students of leadership or unwitting leaders in their own ways so i was curious if there was anything that you've learned either from reading all these theories coming up with some of your own around leadership or from your your own work in reforming this field and pushing against some of its worst tendencies um, is there anything that comes out of that that you think more people should be doing yeah, so that, yes, that's a good question, Jasper. A good friend of mine, a Finn called Pertu Salavera, wrote a chapter in a book that I recently published, and he writes about why can't leaders be more human? 
And what he's saying in that chapter is about how in our kind of heroicism, how in the heroicism around leadership, that we actually make leaders less than human because we don't accept their frailties and we don't accept their limitations. And how this is actually dehumanizing, both for leaders and for followers as well, because we expect in a way that too much sometimes of our leaders. And so I guess, you know, building on Pertu's work, I think that there's something about how we can actually not expect so much either of ourselves or of our leaders to solve all our problems and to be perfect. You know, we, we should not be expecting ourselves to be perfect or, and our leaders to be perfect. And there's something about bringing, I think, our humanity, which is flawed, which doesn't always know which way to go, which, which is vulnerable. If we can bring that whole of our humanity to our practice as leaders and followers, I think that allows for more humanity all round. Oh, thank you. It reminds me of the the Christian idea of grace, kind of extending grace to yeah. other people and to yourself. I love that. That's, that's a great yeah. word, Jasper, grace. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Donna. It's been a real pleasure, Jasper. Thank you so much for inviting me. The school that Donna teaches in is Antioch's Graduate School of Leadership and Change. We'll link to more information about that in our show notes. She runs a certificate there called Leading for Inclusion and Racial Justice. Look in our show notes to find more information about that too. We post these show notes on our website, theseedfield.org, where you'll also find full episode transcripts, prior episodes, and more. The Seedfield Podcast is produced by Antioch University. Our editor is Lauren Instanez. A special thanks to Karen Hamilton and Melinda Garland. Thank you for spending your time with us today. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you next time. And don't forget to plant a seed, sow a cause, and win a victory for humanity. From Antioch University, this has been the Seedfield Podcast.